Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we look back through all of human history and give you examples of absolute unbelievable stupidity so that you can learn lessons from these mistakes and never repeat them again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We just love making mistakes. It's our raison d'etre. I'm beginning to suspect that. Um, slightly different format this time round. Derek, unfortunately, isn't here for the live recording um, of this episode. He's um, taking a week to himself. That's fine. We all totally need um, our own space from time to time. So what is going to happen with the live portion of this episode is I am going to uh, tell you about my idiot for this week and then the second half of the episode we will go back through our greatest hits and we'll find one of Derek's most amazing segments and I will edit that in and you will have a very special kind of half greatest hits half original episodes so let's get started this week I will also um, endeavor to answer any questions that come up in the comment screen but I've got two screens I've got the one here with my script and then I've got the one over here where all of the comments come in and where I can see myself so I will try and uh, split my time between them but it's been a while since I've done this driving by myself so anyway let me tell you about my idiot this week the man we're going to be talking about is Santiago um, I didn't check how to say this surname in advance, but Santiago Genoves, um, it's G-E-N-O-V-E-S, and the E has got a circumflex above it on uh, the, the second E anyway, so I think it's Genoves or something like that. So Santiago Genoves, the man who created a stupid experiment and then sabotaged it with his own stupidity. Um, Santiago Genoves, for, who was born in uh, Spain in, on the 31st of December 1923, was a uh, Spanish-born but emigrated to Mexican uh, Mexico, even anthropologist who was affiliated with the National Autonomous University of Mexico. In 1973, Mexican anthropologist Santiago Genoves um, set out to test a hypothesis. He was struck by the connection between violence and sexuality in monkeys. And, of course, most conflicts, he noted, are about sexual access to ovulating females. This is obviously based on monkeys, right? So you've got a bit of a barrier there. It's kind of a weird assumption to start with. But then again, you know, I'd imagine that the majority of, you know, monkey sepian whatever civilization is based entirely around living in situations where those are really only the two options for things to do so he made the assumption that because that society revolved around access to ovulating females that all societies would revolve around access to ovulating females um and basically you know if you apply that to human civilization you're skipping over a huge number of uh, reasons for um, violence and conflicts, like who's next in line for the taxi, um, who should clear up the mess, who should pay the bills, whose turn it is at the pool table, and, you know, like seven million other reasons to have an argument that have nothing to do with sex. So I, I think it was onto a bit of a loser from the start. But anyway, let's get back to it. I should also credit um, The Guardian 
from 2019 for this um, piece. I've I kind of borrowed a fair chunk from them, but also I'd highly recommend anyone out there who is uh, wanting to know more about this man. There is a video on YouTube by Wendigoon who covered the monument mythos and talked about me in, in really nice terms. Uh, Wendigoon does a great video on this about the raft experiment. So I would highly recommend you search out Wendigoon, go and watch his video and all the other ones as well, because he's, he's really good. His long form multi-hour videos are really really good and interesting but also like if you need something on in the background while you're like cooking or working out or whatever it might be you know going for a walk his youtube videos are really really good for that so i would highly suggest it i think they also come in podcast form so look wendy goon up he's he's amazing anyway back to the article um he wanted to know santiago genoves would this apply to humans and to find out he asked a british boat builder to make a 12 by 7 meter raft called akali on which he planned to sail from uh he planned to sail with 10 sexually attractive young people um as he put it i think they're all in their 20s or 30s the majority of them were married that was kind of a prerequisite to this they had to be married but also their partners weren't coming with them so their partners were staying on dry land while these 10 sexually attractive young people came on a boat with this 50-year-old anthropologist who's already a bit weird. Um, and they were going to sail across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands, which is just off the coast of Portugal, to Mexico. And um, it was like a prototype uh, for the glut of reality television that you you had in the early 2000s and um, kind of like a floating love island or big brother at sea kind of thing. But with a twist, the participants were so isolated from the rest of the world that it had to it would have been futile to cry, get me out of here. So they can't leave. They're at sea for 100 days, which is typically the amount of time it takes for um sailless boats and i should point out this thing had no sails to cross the atlantic in those conditions so just over three months uh the only ways out were drowning or getting eaten by sharks and the boat was followed by a massive school of sharks the entire way which is uh, as far as foreboding signs go the fact that you are being trailed by uh hungry sharks is really not good anyway um, just as they were about to um, set off onto uh, the mission, one of the partners of, I think it was maybe the captain, the female captain, got on the radio and said, look, I read through your contract. I don't know if you've read everything in it, but it says in a part that you belong mind, body and soul to this scientist for the duration of the trip. I'm concerned about that. That sounds really weird. And the the crew member just sort of brushed it off as like oh it's probably just boilerplate contract stuff it wasn't and we'll get to that later genovez was a veteran of extreme rafting a few years earlier he'd been part of one of the seven strong multinational crew of thor heyerdahl's two raw expeditions to sail reed rafts uh like those that were used in ancient egypt across the atlantic now those things were never designed for use on the atlantic but um he he was part of this study and um, the rafts themselves were, it was a kind of a, a symbol to show that people from varying different backgrounds could um, work together and achieve something that most people thought would be impossible. And he saw that, he saw how effective it was and just decided to do his own twist on it. 
So he had grander motives in planning his voyage. He sought to diagnose and cure world violence, is essentially what he said. And that's what he told all the participants. He said that they were there. And this is a very vague thing. He said, we're here to um, solve how to create world peace. And a lot of people at the time um, in the 1970s, early 70s, he still had the lingering hippie kind of um, culture going on. People were well into solving you know, uh, violence and and creating world peace. And they thought, you know, that these well-meaning people thought they were going to be part of that. What they weren't told was that he was going to do this by trying to get them to descend into absolute chaos and anarchy and see if they would end up having loads of sex and just basically attacking each other and forming a social hierarchy on this boat. He forgot to mention that to any of the participants, and that was his entire aim, was to be there when everyone essentially went feral and attacked each other. So we'll get to that now. Um, and he also wanted to... So the original um, voyage uh, that he was part of, the Norwegian adventurer, uh, took people from different races, and he decides to do the same as well. To that end, he placed ads in international newspapers and made his selection from respondents choosing a crew of strangers from different races and religions so that he could create a microcosm of the world. Among the five women and five men were a Japanese photographer, an Angolan priest, a French scuba diver, a Swedish ship's captain, an Israeli doctor and an Alaskan waitress who was fleeing an abusive husband. Genoves called his boat the Peace Project, but it rapidly became known in the world's press as the Sex Raft. We'll get to that as well later. To spur conflict on board, Genoves minimized opportunities for privacy. His human guinea pigs were allowed no reading material. When they wanted to use the loo, they had to sit on a hole perched over the edge of the ship. Uh, with the waves below, and basically the waves would lap your backside clean, essentially. So you are on the front of the ship, out in everything, just pooing for the whole ocean and your crewmates to see. And at first, people were really, really squeamish, but after a while, they sort of got used to it, which drove Genoves crazy because he wanted that to be like a humiliating thing that would spur conflict. It didn't. People were like, I'm having a pee, turn around. They're like, oh, okay, just let us know when you're done. He's like, no, stare at them. Um, so Genovas um, also created certain areas on the boat. So the the, um, the boat was very, very small. The living quarters, everybody slept inside the same space on board the boat, all in one place. On top of the sleeping area, which was kind of the main part of the ship, was like a kind of a, a, a ceiling, but it was like kind of, it, it had, it went down. Oh, how am I describing this? It was kind of like a little imagine a pool right so you've got the sides of the pool they slope down and then you've got a flat bottom right essentially that's what it was it was a flat bottom boat that um people could sit on and just sort of relax it was almost like a sunbathing area but again no privacy and then just in front of the sleeping area was like a kitchen area where you could prepare the food and there was a bunch of storage on the ship as well because all the food was prepared in advance it was all tinned it was all kind of uh vacuum packed and all of that stuff and they didn't have to prepare any food it was all there for them they could just have what they wanted and then the rest of it was just kind of storage and seating and stuff but there was essentially no privacy from the outside world and if they wanted to clean they had to go and swim in the ocean and take a bar of soap with them essentially so he's created as little privacy on this thing as possible so he wants people to have open sex 
is what he's looking for and to then that to stir more violence and um obviously with 10 strangers all of whom are married it's kind of a difficult thing to balance anyway um sex was logistically tricky either with you would have to do it in full, uh, full view of everyone or wait until um the opportunity offered by nighttime and even then two people were on duty one of them was keeping a lookout and the other one was steering so if you were quick about it crew members related you could have it basically you could have sex but um you had to keep one hand at the helm throughout that's that's really not a very great way of you know kind of copulating with some random stranger anyway the boat would have no no engines and would sail across the caribbean um did I say no sails? I meant no engine. I'm sorry. It's They had sails. They just uh, didn't have an engine. Just in time. So they were going across to the Caribbean and they were arriving just in time for hurricane season, which I think was another deliberate choice on his part. Genoves knew that the Arcalia was sailing into danger, but throughout the, uh, thought the science justified the risk. I believe that in dangerous situations, people will act on their instincts and I will be able to study them, study them. So, which is something he did constantly. He kept copious amounts of notes. All of them are weird and the majority of them have absolutely no relation to what actually happened on the ship. They're all just random junk written by this crazed lunatic. Um, he put the women in charge in part to reflect uh, what he thought was a growing gender equality in society, which in the 70s, you know, you've got feminism on the rise and um, he wanted to incorporate that into the experiment. But also he did it because he wanted to piss off the men and see if they would try and seize control or, or kind of take over from the women or possibly get so frustrated they would start fighting amongst themselves. Um, the raft was captained by Maria Bjornstam, and Edna Reves, was, who was the ship's doctor. Toasterzoid, uh, what did you do with the other guy? Derek's having a week off, um, and we're just doing it solo this time, so it's going to be a really short live episode. But for those lis listening afterwards, there will be a second part where Derek talks about um, uh, something from the past. So we'll record in his part as well. So we're studying The Raft, if you've seen the documentary The Raft. Um, so he's got these two uh, women who are in charge. He's got the captain, Maria, and Edna, who was the ship's doctor. The men were all given menial tasks on board this raft and basically like cleaning and cooking and, you know, swabbing the deck and scaring away the sharks and cleaning the toilet, just all the really basic stuff. Um, no, like what no kind of authority whatsoever the only person who had any authority was santiago himself while he was observing everyone and he said i wonder if having women in power will lead to less violence or more he mused maybe maybe men will become more frustrated when women are in charge and try to take over so he's basically doing a bond villain bit straight away like he's he's already manipulating his own subjects and i guess this is part of the science of the experiment so he's not told his subjects what the experiment's about he's sort of lied to them he's kind of told a little bit of the truth but not much and he's also now trying to manipulate them into acting more violently so the the, the experiment's kind of skewed towards getting people to become violent and try and have sex to dominate each other but um he's also armed with a bunch of questionnaires and spreadsheets 
that matched uh, that matched up rises in um, aggression and sexual activity with phases of the moon and uh, wave height. So he thought the more uh, the calmer the ocean, the less violence and more sex there'd be, and the stormier the water, the more violence and less sex because yeah, seasickness. He yearned to discover what humanity must do to live in peace. But also, he wanted to watch people try and kill and fuck each other to death. There's, there's no doubt this is basically his kick, right? It's definitely part of this whole thing. Science be damned, he basically wants to uh, play God, you know, essentially, with these people's lives. It didn't work out that way. Unfortunately, this plan of his to create this violent storm on this boat full of, fighting and sexual aggression it, it just didn't work what happened in the next 101 days is now chronicled in marcus lindine's documentary the raft i know toasted it's crazy using 16 millimeter film for the journey spliced with new footage in which surviving crew members recall their experiences 43 years after the yakalai's voyage they're all a fair like something like two-thirds well a third of them are dead now most of them men and uh, I think there's five women in, and one man left. So, you know, the crew is diminishing rapidly. Also, Santiago is long dead because he was like 20 years older than the majority of them as well. Um, so uh, Lindine, this filmmaker, uh, recreates one of the weirdest social experiments of all time. I suspect that if Santiago were alive today, he would be working reality television, says the Swedish artist, theatre director, playwright and documentary filmmaker. Over Skype from Stockholm... Lindine tells the Guardian he was working for uh he was looking for material to make a film akin to his debut document documentary The Regretters. The footage is on a documentary called The Raft. If you Google The Raft documentary, I don't know if it's on Netflix. It is in some places, um, but you may be able to rent it, you know, online somewhere. Um, I'd highly recommend it. It's a really interesting documentary. Or you can watch Wendigoon's video on it, which is almost as long as the documentary itself. Uh, the 2010 film that uh, this Swedish filmmaker made called The Regretters was about two Swedish men, both of whom had gone through um, sexual and gender reassignment surgery. This is what the article says, not me. Uh, became women, regretted it, and then transitioned back. Um, I was looking for another project that would involve a group coming back together and reflecting on what had happened to them. I thought about a queer commune. Then he read a book called Mad Science, 100 Amazing Experiments from the History of Science, which contained an account of Santiago Genovese's peace project. Um, I felt, oh my God, this is it. It was Homer's Odyssey, an adult Lord of the Flies with a hint of Fitzcarraldo and fingers crossed, a, re a rerun of 120 Days of Sodom. So this guy is nearly as weird. This documentary filmmaker is nearly as weird as Santiago himself. He's he's looking for a salacious story, and Santiago was looking for a salacious experiment. They were both kind of disappointed. Um, so he started to track down the crew, only to find many of them had died in the interim, including the scientist Santiago Genovas. Maria, the captain, was Swedish, so he got in touch with her really quickly because yeah, he's a Swedish filmmaker, but she was quite shy and sort of ashamed about her role in what had become called the sex raft and initially didn't want to be part of the documentary film. Uh, then she realized that she'd actually seen this documentary filmmaker's earlier work and she changed her mind because she felt that he could give an even handed account of what actually happened. This is the same structure. Um, this is 
this has the same structure of an episode of a regular show. Yeah, it, it's essentially the same thing, only it's half of a, uh, a live show. So we'll be going through uh, the normal stuff, and I'll try and keep my eye on the, the chat toast and I'll try and interact when I can. Um, so the filmmaker um, got in touch with Maria, and once Maria was on board, she produced a box from her attic in Gothenburg that uh, she'd never opened before, and she started to look through it. Inside were, inside were a bunch of photographs and blueprints from the construction of the raft, but most importantly, a contacts book that um, Lindine um, used to then track down all the other crew members. And once he could track down the five women and the one man, he secured their agreement to take part. He commissioned a full-sized replica of the raft to put on a soundstage where he would film them reminiscing. They had not met since the Peace Project docked in Mexico 43 years earlier. So the reunion was very poignant. In one of the raft's most powerful moments, Faye Seymour, an African-American engineer, tells her white compatriot Marie Gidley of the strange dreamy sense she had on making the same journey across the Atlantic as her African ancestors on slave ships. I would sit on the starboard side and look into the water and I would start to hear voices coming from down there. I could hear my ancestors call me. They could feel me flying over their heads and their tragedies. It was one of the most, it was one of the best things that happened to me. That is really intense and i can understand why she would want to make the journey the person she's talking to uh marie also had uh, sorry mary also had her own secret uh she was fleeing an abusive husband who tried to murder her because he'd overheard her plans to divorce him while talking to a friend on a boat i believed he was going to strangle me so i ran and jumped off the boat and um, that was her escape. What the hell is happening? I know it's crazy. So these two women are having a conversation about why they feel really emotionally connected to this voyage, and it brings them closer together. So this whole time that Santiago is trying to prod these people into being violent and have sex, they're just becoming friends. They're just hanging out. They're having a really nice time. They're all married, so they're talking about their partners and the stuff they get up to in their private life and, you know, the things they do on the weekend and stuff like that. And Santiago wanted them to cheat on their spouses so that he could prove that humans by their very nature are violent and sex mad. But none of that happened. They're all just sharing their innermost secrets and stories and becoming really close friends and having a really good time. The only person who's not enjoying themselves is Santiago because he can see his sight, his experiment falling apart before his very, very eyes. Yeah, the ocean's haunted. Yeah, it fucking is as well. Not that uh, Santiago's raft was uh, an antidote to the patriarchy. With a Caribbean hurricane brewing, Maria, the experienced ship's captain, recommended they pull into a port to stop for the storm. Uh, Genova's fearing that it would he was ruin his experiment. Um, if they did so, mutinied and took control of the raft himself and told Maria to back off. He wants to be very progressive and radical, giving power to women, says Lindine. But when it comes to the crisis of the captaincy, he's very machismo and also massively weird. I don't think machismo really cuts the the thing here. He's basically, he needs absolute control of everything all the time, even in a hurricane, which, you know, you can't, you can't do that. 
Um, his notes are hilarious. He keeps thinking that they're plotting against him and becoming more savage in nature. But the truth is the majority of the crew saw it as a massive 100 day long holiday where they hung out, cooked, uh, cooked their pre-prepared food and became best friends. And uh, no one ever fought with anyone while they were on board. And there were only two instances of mild sexual interaction during the entire voyage. Santiago, though, basically ruined his own experiment experiment at every opportunity he was given. He kept trying to create scenarios where people might fight, like turning the ship sideways into the waves. So um, basically, when you do that, it makes people sick. Like if you go side onto the waves, you're rocking from side to side instead of forwards to backwards. And the brain can't handle going from side to side in a rocking motion unless you're a baby. Um, basically makes them super sick. And that didn't work. People just banded together and told him to stop being such a dickhead. And uh, the next thing he did, because he was so desperate for them to get violent and have sex, um, he started telling them the results of the initial um, surveys that they'd filled in when they arrived on the boat, where they're talking about each other like, oh, you know, I don't know about this person or I don't, I don't trust this person, I don't like this person. And he did this in front of everyone. So he revealed all of their secrets. And their response was, look, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't know you at the time. I apologize. Now that I've gotten to know you, you've become a true friend and I'm really sorry. And the, the person who had been offended was like, you know what, it's totally okay. It's completely understandable. I had my reservations about this person, but now I've gotten to know you, you're all fine. And th while this kind of resolution is happening Santiago is stewing and fuming and getting more and more angry because his time is running out and nobody is fighting they're all becoming best friends this is like putting a bunch of raccoons into a tank and seeing how long it takes them to go through McDonald's drive-through I know it's kind of crazy like as an idea for an experiment it's kind of interesting but he's sabotaging it because he's not getting the results he wants now any good scientist will tell you that you know, you create a, a hypothesis or a theory and you test the theory. And if it doesn't work, then that's your result. It's not like you failed because you didn't prove it. You just it's actually this is a good thing. It shows that humans natural state isn't constantly fighting and trying to destroy each other when they're in enclosed environments. They become friendly. And if he looked into any part of evolutionary history, Humans have become a dominant species on the planet for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because we form close community bonds with each other. We become friends with each other. We help each other. And that's why we are where we are now, because we all club together as a species and we evolve. And he just didn't get that. He thought, oh, it's all about sex and violence. Like, actually, no, that's why we're not living on Planet of the Apes, you know, where, where the dominant male will rise to the top i mean to a certain extent that happens but for the majority of the time people get on the problem is he's always made up his mind before the experiment exactly and he wanted the experiment to prove him right but it's clearly proving him wrong and instead of doing the scientific thing of saying you know what that's great this is a fantastic outcome maybe world peace is striving through difficult situations together and coming together as a as, as a community he's like no they're not punching each other um his notes are completely at odds with what's really happening on the ship. And the uh, the crew eventually caught a shark in a scenario, one of the sharks of the school that was following them. They caught this shark, and he noted um, what was happening in graphic detail. And he was like, oh, my God, they're savagely ripping into this 
um, animal. It's an orgy of violence. This poor animal. Maybe I'll be next. And then every, everyone else remembers it as this moment where a couple of people gutted the shark and filleted it, and then they cooked it on the barbecue. And like it was just like a really happy moment where like, oh my god, we got fresh meat. Oh, that's really interesting. I've never eaten shark before. Let's try it. And he's like, oh my god. They're destroying this poor shark. Oh my god, what's next? Who's who's gonna die next? And I'm like, no, dude, they're just enjoying a barbecue. What's the matter with you? I don't think Planet of the Apes is a good comparison, though. Probably not. No, because that's that's kind of a wild scenario in itself. Um, despite the numerous books of deluded notes, he did also fail to notice the two occasions that there actually were sexual contact on the boat, and that's because the people involved wanted to have a bit of closeness and they asked two other people to turn their backs to the activity and keep a lookout to make sure that santiago didn't notice because they they didn't want him getting anything out of this so the two times this happened he didn't notice because the the people involved made sure that he was not part of it uh, surveys he kept on handing out daily surveys to the crew members and usually it would be like, what are you feeling? What are your thoughts? Who's annoying you? Stuff like that. Um, eventually, uh, the he wanted to have access to their daily emotional state. After a couple of weeks, all of the surveys would come back saying the same thing. I hate Santiago. I can't stand you. Why are you this way? Why do you behave like this? Why are you trying to upset us? So basically everyone had turned against him at this point and he was just ignoring it. He was just like, oh, they're becoming more savage. Oh, I wonder, yeah, I'll be the first to go and then they'll turn on each other. Like, no, they just don't like you because you're an arsehole, mate. Um, towards the end of the voyage, the press got wind of what was going on. They actually got hold of Santiago's original thesis and discovered that he wasn't really that focused on establishing world peace. Santiago, um, as he'd claimed to his entire crew, he was actually looking to see how much sex and violence he could create in an enclosed, inescapable situation. The word eventually got um, out, and the world press called it the sex raft. That was it. Like Front page news across the world in the early 1970s. This crazy scientist has taken a bunch of strangers onto a boat they don't know what they're getting in for, and he's trying to kill them, and they're all having sex and all. And a bunch of the newspapers even included salacious stories from the boat, which they'd completely made up, because of course they had. It's the fucking press. Um, word eventually got back to the crew on board the boat, which led to uh, the final leg of the journey. Genovese was symbiotically castrated later on the Atlantic crossing, a huge container ship, bore down on the little raft and he panicked only maria the captain kept a cool head and organized flares to um, ward off the looming ship and people to row in a certain direction and people to signal in a certain direction she was just a woman of action and he just fell to pieces it was hilarious after that the guinea pigs turned on the scientist maria became captain again and um, others on the raft, uh, others on the raft, were so sick of him at this point that they actually contemplated killing him. So, kind of his violence thing came true, but only because he pushed people to their absolute limit. He didn't just sit back and let nature take its course. He deliberately antagonized them so much that they did want to kill, but they only wanted to kill him because he was an arsehole. Um, Faye recalled pitching an idea that everybody would put their hands on a knife 
and plunge it into him uh, so that everyone was guilty, so they'd all have one stab. Uh, what kind of boat was this? I need something to compare the size to. I'm American. So it was 12 by 7 meters, so like, oh my god, like 30 foot by about, by about 15 foot, something like that. It was kind of, and um, it had a little bit in front of the on the very front of the boat there was a toilet and it was just open to the elements and your bum got cleaned by the water by the water lapping up your bum um there was a cooking station kind of a kitchen on the front of the boat there was a sleeping area where everyone slept in in the middle of the boat which was the kind of the enclosed space and on the top of that was like a little sun area where everyone could kind of sunbathe but there was no privacy at all um and yeah, it didn't have an engine, only had sails. So that was the way they got across. And it was 100 days. I know, really disgusting, to be honest. Um, so <coughs> while uh, they're discussing this plan to kill Santiago and kind of do it in a Roman emperor, Julius Caesar sort of way, where everyone's guilty by association because they've all had one stab, he had absolutely no idea this was going on because he he'd become so crazy at this point, he was just sort of writing and not paying any attention to what was going on around him. Overthrown, though, he retreated back below deck and collapsed into a, a deep, deep depression, made worse by news on the radio that his university wanted to be disassociated with the scandalous sex-wrapped headlines, and that he was essentially fired the second he got back on dry land. While lying there, he started to cry for the first time since childhood and had an existential epiphany, writing, Only one has shown any kind of aggression, and that is me, a man trying to control everyone else, including himself. The detached scientist had gone on a Conradian journey, ultimately realizing that the heart of darkness was inside him. That's kind of true, but not really, because... Um, it didn't stop him acting like a giant baby because he was down in like the sleeping part of this boat for days saying that his heart was like he was having heart problems and that his blood pressure and that he felt like he was having like really bad illnesses. And the, because they had a doctor on board, the doctor would check him multiple times every single day. And every single day, this captain was like, uh, the doctor was like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. So he'd essentially realized that his experiment was a failure and instead of thinking wow maybe i have sold world peace maybe that's the thing he was like oh i didn't get my way i'm going to be upset after the crew rebelled lyndon argues he finds some kind of humbleness i admire him why for making this crazy experiment happen i don't think you should be admiring that to be honest <clears throat> was the peace project a failure Fay argues as it was a great success even though the anthropologist couldn't see it he was so focused on the violence and conflict, he had it right in his hands. He started out, uh, we started out as them and us, and we became us. So essentially these two warring factions, him and the crew, eventually had to come together because he was below deck faking everything. Um, for Lindy, it's poignant that uh, Faye praises the experiment. If only Santiago had listened to why people were on the raft, Many were escaping abusive situations. Um, some were escaping racism and others were escaping uh, mundanity. Some of them were stuck in really kind of boring jobs or, or difficult places in their life. And they wanted to overcome those situations and also at the same time overcome their differences. So Santiago had learned a lot about himself uh, through his uh, supposedly detached scientific experiment 
So Lindine had an epiphany in making the film. I was raising the money, making a full-size model of the raft, getting the crew back together, all the filming, a year of the editing, a really crazy project. It was painful to realize, but I see something of myself in him. He was a master of manipulation and a control freak and a dictator. And I'm like that more than I want to realize. So basically, the, the film director is very similar to the scientist. Um, hey, might have gotten results he wanted if uh, he might have gotten results if they had a bigger boat and more people. I don't know. I just, I mean, at a certain point, there's like kind of. I guess he kind of has to give up because there are plenty of bigger boats out there with lots more people on. And I know that they're designed for leisure and stuff, but you never really get mass violence, even though it's an inescapable situation. I just, I feel like it's, it's a poor starting point for an experiment and he proved himself wrong. And instead of accepting that with humility, he, he threw his toys out. Now this, this article finishes here and it seems to say that he, found redemption of sorts but that's not essentially true because after the experiment which he definitely uh, he definitely wasn't humble uh, because he was a, he was forced to admit that his experiment um, hadn't proved his thesis and instead of it being this triumph of the human spirit situation he got really really pissy and blamed the crew of the ship for sabotaging it and said he'd do it again only this time for real with blackjack and hookers um i can see this being a love death and robots episode it really could it really is a fascinating episode really more about one man than his experiment it's about this guy who was so stupid he he couldn't let go of the original thesis um he also proposed to anyone that would listen in the press conference where he was told yes he had indeed lost his job with the university and that he would recreate the experiment with one person at the helm, so just one person sailing the ship, and himself below deck at the bottom of the vessel in a glass box, uh, just like so um, open to the, the deck, but then it would be lowered and it would all be glass on these different sides looking into the water, and he would be in the glass box staring out into the darkness of the ocean, and I have no idea how that is ever supposed to prove that humans are inherently violent and sex mad because David Blaine didn't resort to violence and sex while he was stuck in a glass box above London for however many days. And that's essentially what he's, he's doing it. Yes, he has completely lost it at this point. Toasterzoid, you're right. And I, I don't really know where to go with this guy because i mean i know we're not going to score it because derek's not here to score it maybe we'll get him to score it next episode but i, I generally feel that this guy is the worst kind of scientist because generally scientists are impartial to their own involvement in their projects right they are there for the results they are there for the insights that they get from conducting these experiments he wasn't because he created this original, weird, and deeply flawed experiment. But instead of just saying, wow, maybe I solved world peace. This is how we can build a society. You put them in difficult situations, see how they bond. I'm giving him a 41 out of 100. That's, that's kind of low, actually. But yeah, he's, he's, he's so 
I so couldn't let go. He involved himself in his experiment, completely skewed it by manipulating situations so that he could possibly create conflict. And then when it came time to looking, analyzing at the results, he said that they were flawed because of the crew, not himself. So Santiago Genoves, probably the worst anthropologist of all time, and also, ironically, one of the most famous as a result of this experiment, the headlines it got from the press, and also the documentary The Raft, which I highly recommend any of you to go and watch. It was um, it was kind of interesting watching uh, a lot of the crew talk about it because you know they were a lot of them were dead set on killing him. That's how bad it got on this thing. They were really definitely going to try and kill him. Fortunately, they were forced ashore by um, a hurricane, and that's that's when it was kind of cut short. But yeah, um, Santiago Genoves, the anthropologist who set up a bad experiment and then ruined it with his own stupidity. Um, so far, Toastazoid has scored it 41 out of 100. I will take that as a base. I'll get uh, Derek's score, hopefully the next time we have a chat. But um, yeah, it, it's um, it's a very weird one for me. I, I enjoyed researching this. And again, I enjoyed watching um, Wendigoon's video on the subject. And I also enjoyed watching the documentary. So if you are wanting to learn more about this ridiculous experiment, Go and watch um, The Raft on whatever platform you can. You can probably get it available somewhere, rent it or buy it or whatever it is. Very good documentary. And also watch Wendigoon's video. Wendigoon, if you're out there, um, I love your stuff. And thank you for being so polite about me, the Monument Mythos. That was really nice to hear. Um, I will, those of you who are uh, watching live, this is kind of coming towards the end of the episode. Thank you for joining me. Those who are listening on the podcast, we will now jump to Derek's segment from a previous episode so that we can give you a full-length episode instead of just a slightly shorter one. So, Derek, who is your Halloween special idiot? Well, you know, with Halloween being the way it is, it conjures up all the thoughts of spooky and macabre stuff. Mm. And it's like, I don't know, there's superstition and tradition, people telling scary stories about ghosts and ghouls and werewolves and... I thought, you know what? Witches, witches have to do with Halloween. And there was a period in time when uh, people just killed people they thought were witches. That's very true. So I thought it might be fun to take a look at the real life history of someone that took their superstition and beliefs just way too far. Mm. Today, I'd like to tell you the tale of England's witch finder general, Matthew Hopkins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man, well, uh, I can't wait for this. Go, I got hitters with it. Matthew Hopkins. Oh god, I can't. So wait. there's there's not a lot known about his early life. Sure. So uh, I'm not going to be able to look at any sort of trauma from his childhood that might have led to the extreme superstitions that he had, mm. um, yeah. which led to torture and murder. Uh, what is known about him that he is he was born in Great Wenham in Suffolk. When uh, yeah, how there do you we spell go. that? W e n h a m. Wenham, yeah, Suffolk. Wenham. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, England, Suffolk, Suffolk, Suffolk. Okay, yeah, yeah. very good. Uh, he, That's very well he, done. He was the fourth of six children of James Hopkins, a Puritan vicar of Saint John's Great Wenham. Okay, per, sure. Yeah, uh, perhaps being the son of a Puritan vicar had something to do with. His superstition and thoughts. Fuck yeah, that time. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Um, 
it should be mentioned that there was a shit ton happening in England right at that same time that kind of mm-hmm. created a perfect climate for Hopkins to position himself. Did in... it ever. Yeah. Well, during the 16th and 17th century, England was really in the grips of like a hysteria over witchcraft that was kind of brought on in part by King James I, who was mm. obsessed with the dark arts and wrote really that whole, was. what was it, demonology in yeah. 1599? Yeah. That book uh, was actually later used by Hopkins as a tool in his witch finding. Wow. So it should also be noted that England was going through one of the darkest periods of economic depression and Mm -hmm. religious revivory, as well as the threat of civil war being right there on the population. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely lingering around about that time, and it wouldn't take long to materialize. I was right on the horizon. So, yeah, man, that was not, it was not a good time. I mean, medieval, well, that medieval, it's kind of more enlightenment times now because the, you know, uh, the the Renaissance has happened. But that point in time in European history was very turbulent. Not that Europe's especially calm at any point in history. but, um, (laughs) But yeah, that particular time, there was a lot of paranoia. Like, a staggering amount of scared people were around at that time. And unfortunately, a lot of them had power. And that's kind of the worst thing to have when you are paranoid. Absolutely. Power over people, yeah. So, sorry, carry on. All of those powerful people and Mm. that superstition and hysteria and fear combined to create, like, a perfect environment where the citizens across the country were perfectly set up to have a witch finder general come wandering in and peddle his wares please save a strong man (laughs) in the early part of 1640 he moved to manning tree essex where Mm -hmm. he was according to most of the information available he tried to establish himself as a gentleman and a local aristocrat and even it's believed he bought the thorn inn in mistley Okay, yeah, that's 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 a good good living if you're establishing yourself as a kind of a member of the aristocracy, but you kind of may not have the money. Then, um, then yeah, I I think uh, buying yourself a pub would be really good. Uh, certainly a good way of you know getting yourself some extra money if you don't have any land. So yeah, Carry on, for sure. Please. So Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed witch hunter general, uh, started getting down to business in March of 1644 uh, yeah. when he associated with John Stern and mm-hmm. they who, who had accused a group of women in Manning Tree, Essex of trying to kill him with sorcery. Okay, right, yeah. Sorry, just want to say Stern and Hopkins sounds like an amazing law firm. Um, I know, right? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so yeah, he's he's like, right, these women, they tried to bewitch me. It's like, no, we just turned you down because you were pestering us. No, witches. So that, uh, immediately that's my first thought. <laughs> <laughs> so Hopkins began to investigate John Stern's accusations and his investigations involved subjecting the accused to <sighs> sleep deprivation oh, and... Dude physical searches of their bodies looking for any physical deformi- deformity or blemish that could be labeled a devil's mark. Uh, <laughs> See a fucking plastic surgeon. Like, oh, we're going to have to get this removed. This was put here by the devil. My God. Uh, Jesus. Well, he was, he was very professional about it. The investigations oh, sure. led to 23 women, although that's not a for sure number. It kind of varies between mm-hmm. accounts. But it led to around 23 women being accused of witchcraft and tried in 1644. Jeez. Uh, 
The trial was presided over by the justices of the peace and resulted in 19 women being convicted and hanged Jeez. while four other women died in prison. Oh so if you're bad at math, that means all of them died off. <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, following that success in the trial, success. Hopkins. <laughs> They're Hopkinson all dead. Success. Went, well, he found them, damn it. He did, yeah. He found uh, witches. Well, after that, uh, those trials, they decided to take the show on the road and traveled throughout <laughs> East Anglia and uh, okay, other nearby yeah. counties. No, very, um, very, very receptive to witch finding in, in so, East Anglia. There's not much to do there. In his real wokeness, though, he brought along with him an entourage of female assistants that he Ooh. called seekers or searchers. Mm, that good. They, they used them to conduct those physical searches of the accused women. Because, I mean, you wouldn't want no. these women that he's about to kill to have suffered the indignity of having their naked bodies examined by a man. I know, yeah. Like We respect the people we're about to murder, okay? We give them their dignity. They could be searched by another woman who will also accuse them of being a witch before we kill them. You know, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. Wow. exactly. It's good of him, yes. <laughs> Jesus. Did I mention that, that uh, Matthew Hopkins... Uh, falsely claimed to hold the official office of Witchfinder General. Ooh, no, you didn't mention that. That's kind of interesting. So he's a charlatan as well. <laughs> he, Yeah, he claimed to be part of an official commission by Parliament to oh. uncover the witches residing in, popula or in the populace by using a practice called pricking. Yeah, because, well, well, he's a what prick. What is pricking? So. <laughs> <laughs> it's his, the pricking was actually his foolproof method for finding witches through a process of uh, pricking or poking the suspected witch with a needle, a pin, or uh, something of that nature. Yeah. The, pra the practice was derived from the belief that all witches and sorcerers um, bore a witch's mark that would not feel pain or bleed when it was pricked. So right. once they stripped them down and searched their bodies and found the devil's mark, <laughs> then he poked it with a needle. <laughs> <laughs> Super like, scientific. This, this looks weird. This will do. Uh, <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, wait, though. There's more because it was widely believed that Hopkins used uh, trick prickers. Oh, right. They had a retractable point so he could poke them without poking them and then be like, oh, they didn't feel it. They're a witch. So he was super sneaky on so that he's, aspect. He's a he's lying. We we've already established that. B he's 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 a lunatic. We've also already established that. Although at that time it would have been very difficult to tell a lunatic from someone who was just a bit full of religious fervor. And now he's like making shit up so that he can get away with doing what he's doing. This, this guy is pure evil. My it's God, almost like he was doing some sort of magic trick. <laughs> with oh, his, his retractable poker there, though, like actual, <laughs> like a magician. <laughs> that's that's kind of amazing. He's got the the poker version of a, a sumo wrestler's genitalia, where they can just retract it at will. It's just kind of. <laughs> I never, never would have thought of it. Oh yeah, they, right up in the body, so that they they don't feel any pain when they're getting like the the wedgie from their opponent. You know, really right Good. up there. <laughs> Man. Now I'm never going to get that image. Yeah, out that's of my that's going to be there. That's going to be there all Halloween. That image. Uh, sorry, carry it. on with Matthew Hopkins <laughs> and his retracting uh, penis pen. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so his even though the torture was considered unlawful in oh, yeah. uh, under English law, Hopkins used the techniques like sleep deprivation, 
uh, to confuse the victims into confessing Jeez. and cutting arms of the accused with a blunt knife. There you go. Um, so that they didn't like bleed. Trying to, or oh, and then tying the victims to a chair and sticking them in water. Because... Right. Yes. No, I remember that. That's that's the. I think there's elements of that in Monty Python. Uh, oh yeah, that's, that's where I get all my witch information <laughs> from. Monty Python films. That was uh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she turned me into a newt. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I got better. Um, um. <laughs> <laughs> so. The, you might wonder how those tests would prove somebody was a witch, uh, cutting them with a knife or yeah. throwing them into the water. But it, it's a believed that if the accused didn't bleed, they would be a witch. Because right. you can't cut a witch with a knife. Okay. And then if you threw them in the water and they floated, they were also a witch because... Um, because witches made well, of wood. Yes, yeah, Some, something like that, I guess. But witches float. They had to be a witch. Okay. There was really so many rules that somebody should have wrote a book and kept that down. Yeah, because oh, he seems wait. like he's making that shit up. Oh, wait, that someone did? He did. He, he did that later, though. I'll tell you about it in a minute. <laughs> so the hysteria continued to grow, and Hopkins spent most of uh, 1648 conducting the witch-hunted hunts, which proved to be super lucrative in terms of monetary gains. Because, but how does he get paid, though? Would it be like the town that would pay him? Or... It's really well, weird. Yeah, Hopkins and his company were paid for their investigations, and it's reported that Ipswich in Suffolk right. actually had to raise the taxes to pay for his <laughs> services. Fucking hell. Oh, as if people who live there don't have enough to deal with with living in Ipswich. Jesus Christ. Uh, wow. That's, that's, it, they raised the taxes. According to Hopkins, though, he stated uh, later in his book, A Discovery of Witches, that the fees were merely to maintain his company and three horses. And he goes on to explain mm. that uh, 20 shillings per town that's was about right. That's a fuckload of money. That's it, so much money from like 16, whatever it was. That's like, yeah, that's a yearly income in one, in, in one go. Really? Well, and accor according to some of the historical records, it shows that he was actually charging them 23 pounds. Uh, <laughs> so if you look at that, it's like 3,800 in today's currency, Jesus. I guess. Jesus. So on top of charging and overcharging and lying about it in his books, and yeah. uh, Hopkins and Stern claimed to have a license to seek him, even though there's no evidence that he wielded any sort of authority like uh, William Downsing. The oh, right, yeah. Iconoclast general who held that commission from poli pa uh, parliamentarian general. Um, sure. But it's believed that they did at least have some sort of letters of safe conduct that allowed them to wander the countryside during the possible civil war that could have been happening at that time. Yep. True. Otherwise, they could have gotten themselves got. And also, um, you know, this is the era of dandy, hi dandy highwaymen. So, uh, yep. yes, they they could have been made to stand and deliver. So, so I'm just <laughs> quoting. I'm assuming they had some sort of forgery papers. Yeah, maybe. Um, but between the years 1644 and 1646, Hopkins and his company were believed to be responsible for the execution of around 300 <sighs> supposed witches. Jesus Christ! Those poor women. Were all of them women, or the vast majority of them? That's no, he actually thing. had some some men in there too. Okay, so necromancers, um, or did he call them witches as well? Or 
something uh, like that. That's a good question, and yeah. I think I have this. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> it probably would have been like, "You're a witch." Well, I mean, is that gender specific? Because I'm a, I'm a man, but then I'm still a witch. Um, so yeah, what would that? <laughs> well, I mean, they Warlock, were making shit up maybe. as they go. So hey, yeah. that might be it. Warlock. There we go. We just named it. So, Take it, Hopkins. Go for it. They were taken on, or they took out about 300 witches and were responsible for sending even more accused people to the gallows uh, than any of the other witch hunters that were active within the previous 160 years. <laughs> oh my God. That's ridiculous. That is but insane. It didn't last too long because tensions began to mount regarding their motives and expertise and authority, and a Puritan cleric by the name of John Gall started to clash with them and preach against them. Good. In his book, uh, Select Case of the Conscious, Touching Witches and Witchcraft. God damn, that's a long name. That is a fucking long name. Take a lesson from Chaucer, you you overly (laughs) literate (laughs) arsehole. Jeez. So Gaul exposed the self-appointed witch uh, finders methods in that long-ass titled book that you can find somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. in 1647, at the postponed Norfolk Aussies, a group of gentlemen influenced by Gaul's writing produced a series of probing questions for man, uh, Mr. Anthony, or excuse me, Matthew Hopkins, and mm. they claimed... He used unlawful courses of torture to make them say anything for the ease of quiet yeah. and exclaimed that was, quote, an abominable, inhumane, and unmerciful trial of other poor creatures by tying them and heaving them into the water, a trial not allowable law by law or conscious, end quote. I think that, that sounds about right. Yeah, um, <laughs> I completely agree with him. Uh, he was out of control and doing pretty much whatever he wanted um and earning an absolute fortune while he did it it's kind of insane but you know i mean shit like that was going on a lot at that time so yeah wow well by the time the court resumed both hopkins and stern uh retired from witch hunting <laughs> which is pretty convenient but thank goodness the mass murder was over yeah thank s- God. sort of mm. <laughs> The same year, that's when uh, Hopkins published his book, The Discovery of Witches, mm. which ch- tried to rebuff Gall's accusations by detailing his methods and recounts and how he does it. And it was aided by the explosion in, in demand for the printed word, so the book became mm. kind of a minor sensation. Sure, yeah. And led to his enduring reputation. Um, Matthew Hopkins died at his home in Manning Tree on the 12th of August, 1647, of tuberculosis, which okay. I'm sure he really thought was witchcraft. And <laughs> yeah. If he'd have been around to explain it, he would have pointed yeah, them like, out, too. Where's, where's the nearest woman? It was her, that witch there. Wow, Jesus. Now, you'd think that the end, or his death, would be the end of the story, but it's not. Oh, did, because... was he a witch and he brought himself back to life? Because that would be amazing if that were the case. <laughs> it, would be, it would be ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matthew Hopkins actually was able to influence from beyond the grave with his book because uh-huh. the discovery of witches was used as kind of a manual uh, for the trial and conviction of Margaret Jones in the Massachusetts Bay Colony on the east coast of the oh, Americas. No. So, Jones's execution was the first in a witch hunt that lasted in New England from 1648 until 1663, Jeez. where about 80 more people throughout New England were accused of practicing witchcraft, 15 of whom were women and two were men, and they were all executed. 
my God. So uh, they they lived on, or he lived on in his book by mm. outlining his methods and them just taking him on in the Salem witch trials. Oh. So in, in the words of historian Malcolm Gaskill, Matthew Hopkins lives on as an anti-hero and boogeyman, utterly ethereal, endlessly malleable, and I think maybe possibly one of history's greatest idiots, but that's just me. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, it's interesting that the histo- historian will call him an anti-hero. He's a straight-up villain. There's no two fucking ways about it. <laughs> he's charging money to murder people, and he's faking the results. And also, oh, it's yeah. witchcraft, so it's like it's bullshit anyway. So like someone who's very good with maybe medicines or natural remedies and stuff, yeah, immediately a witch. Or she bewitched me because something happened and she was nearby when it happened. It's just, it, it's utter bullshit, and it's um, it's typical of the mentality that unfortunately prevails to this very day in in kind of persecuting kind of uh, different minority groups who are just vulnerable to attack. But Matthew Hopkins is a particularly bad case because he's essentially, like you say, he's someone who popularized the whole uh, method of finding and trying witches, which has led to hundreds of deaths since. Um, Yes. And, you know, the whole, we talk about witch trials like it's a thing of the past. There are parts of the world where black magic and all of that shit is still used as excuses for various things to this very day. So it's it's depressing, but it still happens. So as a result of Matthew Hopkins basically murdering his way across East Anglia and the rest of the country and influencing a paranoia that continues to this day, although obviously it died down a little bit after afterwards, I'm going to have to give him a solid 91, I think. Woohoo! He's just... <laughs> and the thing is, so obviously, you know, it's different categories of idiots. We've talked about this before, like whether they're actual, like really kind of stupid idiots or whether they're failures or whether they're just evil or arseholes. This guy is a pure evil arsehole. Like, he was very successful at what he did. He was a very good... Um, kind of oh, yeah. uh kind of talented successful individual because he was able to get money out of people for his wares but the problem is he was probably disconnected from the reality of the situation and that he didn't realize what he was doing was far more evil than what he was accusing the witches of doing so oh, yeah yeah for sure matthew hopkins definitely a 91 a solid high 91 there because he was pure pure unadulterated money grabbing evil uh, and murdered people as well And that's our show for this episode. Thank you all so very much for tuning in, and we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care now. Bye.